People, hello out there. Welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask big questions about our political institutions and how they might be better. Uh, I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a professorial lecturer in the School of Public Affairs at American University. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. All right. So today we are going to talk about a uh, proposal to increase the size of the House of Representatives, which stands at 435 members as it has since 1911. The people, right? Not the actual footprint. The Well, it, we could talk about that too. Where, where would you put all those people? So quick check in. I'm in favor of increasing the size of, rep, of the House of Representatives. James? I'm opposed to increasing the size, both the architecture of the Capitol and in terms of the number of people. Julia? I, I think I'm pro-increasing the size of the House. And that's the, that's the position from which I'll be arguing today. Well, when I teach right. it in class, I argue both positions. Oh, all right. Well, there, there are certainly different positions. Uh, and then there's a question of if, if we increase the size of the house, how big should it be? So, Well, well how did we get here? Yeah, What's how did we history? get here? All right. So the history is, is interesting. I'll, I'll get into that history. Uh, so 1789 vintage of the U.S. House of Representatives was just 65 members, each representing only 30,000 constituents. And James Madison, as you know, put forward the Bill of Rights, which was 10 amendments. But interestingly, there were actually 12 amendments of which only 10 became the Bill of Rights. And the first amendment that James Madison put forward in that, that package was an apportionment amendment. And Madison thought that the House of Representatives should be close to the people. And to ensure that the House of Representatives would be close to the people, he said, all right, well, we get up to 100 members. That's We'll move it up to 40,000 constituents per member. We get up to 200 members. We'll cap it at 50,000 constituents per member. And beyond that, that's that's as high as we could possibly think of going in order for representatives to stay close to the people, 50,000 constituents. Now, that very nearly became the First Amendment of the, to the Constitution, but it got held up in Connecticut and then it, as, and then it just kind of died. Uh, the Second Amendment became the Salary Grab Amendment, which is the 27th Amendment, and the Third Amendment is what we now think of as the First Amendment. So... For most of the uh, history of the United States, Congress more or less followed along with Madison's basic guidance in that every census, as the population grew, the size of the House continued to grow until 1911 was the last time the size of the House increased. And then the 1910s and the 1920s, there was a lot of disagreement about how to do the reapportionment. There are some conservative elements who were concerned that the urban immigrant populations were going to be overrepresented in the House. And eventually, they just kind of settled on 435, totally arbitrary number, uh, nothing constitutional about it. And that's where we've been ever since. And at that time, the, the ratio of constituents to representatives was about 200,000 to one. It has grown steadily to about 765,000 constituents for every representative. 
And that puts the US as a tremendous outlier among advanced industrial democracies. Most advanced industrial democracies have closer to about 100,000 uh, constituents per representative. And there are a lot of folks, including myself, who think that we should increase the House. Members of Congress should be closer to their constituents. It should be easier for constituents to connect with their members of Congress. It would create a more diverse House. And I, I think we would see a little bit of a, of a healthier democracy as a result. I'm not sure. I mean, a couple of things, it seems to me. One, it's it's not a given that it will result in a more diverse house. It may, but I'm not sure it's just, you know, just because you increase the size um, of the house, you reduce the ratio in terms of the number of people to representatives, that you'll get a more diverse house. And the other thing I would add is with technology, it seems to me that it's a lot easier for a number of people to communicate with their representatives today with technology. We almost need like an inflation or in, you know, when you talk about the value of the dollar in 1789 versus in today's money, what's the value of that proportion in today's technology? Julia? Hmm. I don't know the answer to James' question, but... So I have the, no idea what the answer is, but I'm just asking questions. The, the way I've been thinking about this is there's a couple of things. I mean, one is, is the the story that's very much rooted in the historical facts, um, the the capping of the size of the house specifically to disenfranchise particular constituencies, which is often where I start, where where it's easy to convince me, relatively speaking, of a reform. And there's, it, you know, it seems facially absurd that I think the population of the country has tripled since then. Um, Almost quadrupled. More than tripled. And yeah. so to keep the House of Representatives the same seems you know, as I said, facially absurd. I'm often skeptical of reform arguments that start with those sorts of premises, but it seems to me that one of the questions is how much should representation be a scarce good that people in the United States are competing over? And, you know, it seems possible that there are reasons, there are reasons why that might work in some contexts. Um, and that representation might be something that, that we do kind of limit the supply of. But it, it seems to me that in where we're at politically right now, that there are a lot of downsides. So we're going into where we are in a census year right now, looking to a congressional reapportionment in which there are, as we've we've said at the outset of the show, a set number of, ho- of House seats. This means that states are in a kind of zero-sum competition with each other that would always be the case, but perhaps would be less tense if we had more seats and we could better reflect the kinds of populations that different states have. Um, but as it is, it seems like, you know, if if the big story coming out of that is that some states are losing while other states are winning, that fits right into some very disconcerting competition narratives, right? And stories about who deserves representation and who doesn't. And to the degree that those stories are spun versus reflective of reality seems to me to be not that important. And that feeds into a larger point, which Lee raises in a lovely piece in the Washington Monthly that where he looks at some research by political scientist Brian Frederick that, that does suggest that it, it matters, the district sizes actually do matter for representation and the perception of representation. Our sense of our collective sense of not being represented is really strong right now. 
And that's that's important to this debate. So I guess to me, it's like it's a perceptual question more than what such a house would actually look like. There's always going to be trade-offs in any institutional design. Right. But, and I think the representational question is an important one. It's also important how the house will ultimately operate, a bigger house. And you have James Madison in Federalist 58. He writes, the people can never err more than in supposing that by multiplying their representatives beyond a certain limit, they strengthen the barrier against the government of a few. And he goes on to say that the continents of government may become more democratic, but the soul that animates it will be more oligarchic. The the machine will be enlarged, but the fewer and more secret will be the springs by which its motions are directed. And a lot of the frustration as I see it today with the House of Representatives and with the Senate, with politics in general, is that people feel that their claims are not being adjudicated. And I do think that is a completely reasonable assumption that by making representatives more um, accountable to their constituents, and one way to do that is by reducing the number of constituents they represent, will make them adjudicate their concerns more often. But I'm not sure that that's fully accurate. I mean, I think a larger house ends in a more centralized house. It ends in a more rule-bound house, but has to. And you will have less room for the deliberative uh, function where where constituents' concerns are adjudicated. And I think what gets worse um, about the house uh, in not deliberating is actually the result of, of increasing the size. Well, James, let me push you on that. It, it, by by that logic, the Senate should be a wonderfully deliberative body. Uh, so <laughs> so it, it, if the size principle adheres, then we should see a, a difference between the House and the Senate. So I think that what's I think that what's broken in the House and the Senate are very similar, and I don't think they relate to their size. But I would say that in the Senate. You have, you know, today it's 100 members, but it was 26, but it's still not that many. And the Senate is different. It's evolved differently for that reason. It's a much more relational body. They do things by informal negotiations and by unanimous consent. The rules just don't mean as much. They're not as rule-bound precisely because they have fewer people. The House at 435 members has to be more rule-bound because it's the only way to kind of get things done. Uh, You know, those rules are going to change. They're going to use special rules from the Rules Committee. They're not always going to follow their actual rules, but it's a much more formal body for that purpose. And I think it'll only become even more rule-bound as it gets bigger. I think the Senate, if if you increase the size of the Senate, it would become more rule-bound and more more centralized as well. Hard to see how the House could become any more rule-bound. So why not make it more representative? Well, I think it would become more, I think it would, yes, it would still be rule-bound, but the ability of individuals to to interact with one another, to have small factions and groups of people within the House to end up having a say over what happens, to imagine the Freedom Caucus or an AOC in a House of 6,000 people. It's just going to be harder for them to do that. And it's going to be a lot easier for the cartels, if you will, to exercise control. And I think the problem today is that the cartels have too much control in the House and therefore they don't act on anything because they're divided. And if you have a 6,000 person House, they're going to be more divided internally. And, the, and that centralization is going to be more valuable because they're going to need to suppress those internal divisions. Well, well let's not suppose a 6,000-person house. Well, Julia, pick pick a number. Pick a number? Between yeah. what and one? I, I don't know. How how big should the house be? I mean, isn't it like 4,000 people right now? As a former Senate staffer, it always seems I, yeah. way big for me. 1,200, 1,500, I think 
somewhere between four thirty-five and and six thousand. Maybe we should start small. Let's start All start right. incremental. Four thirty-six. Okay, how about seven hundred? Four thirty-seven. Or is that not Go enough? Once. Well, okay. We're now we're into some interesting questions. How should how should we make this decision other than me just pulling numbers out of my ass? I don't well, know. That seems to be how they did it in seventeen. <laughs> sounds like sounds you know. Yeah. You're an educated person. I'm okay with yeah. that. Well, I mean, the cube root law, which is a empirically verified uh, nerdy nerdy the, poli- the cube root law. Do you not know the cube root law? Well, I, clearly not. I, I don't okay. believe the house should be bigger. So maybe uh, I will well. after you tell me. Well. Wait till we get through with this, because, oh my God, I'm going to blow your mind, James. There, there is an empirical uh, pattern that political scientists have observed. We'll put an article in the show notes, the, the cube root law, that shows that the size of the lower chamber is related in, is basically the cube root of the population of the country. It seems to, to hold with some empirical regularity, but the U.S. is an outlier there. And and if we applied that, that cube root law, we would get a house of 700. In my Washington Monthly article, I proposed 1,600 based on th- that we should go back to the 1911 standard of about 200,000 constituents per members. So anywhere between seven. 700 and 1600, I would say. This is me putting my thumb up and, and smiling. I like, let's just go with that then. All I, right. Yeah, that seems like a good place to, to start our thought experiment. All right. So, why is that better? Why is a 700 person house, how does that cure the dysfunction that we see today? Or maybe it doesn't, but it's just right. It's just the right thing to do. I mean, I think. That's, I'm assuming that it's in response to an institutional problem, but you could make the argument, and maybe you are, Lee, that, that it's just right. It's just better to have more equitable distribution or, you know, between the constituents and their members so that they can be held more accountable and they can be a lot closer. Yeah, I think, I think assuming it doesn't make things worse, and I don't think it could make things any worse. Well, it's I think. So hard to make things worse. It right. I, I think there is a value of representatives representing viewer constituents. So I want to jump in here with a question about the nationalization of politics, which I think is relevant to both your your rules discussion and to the kind of core Madisonian premises and Jeffersonian premises about how these districts should potentially work. So one question is, would smaller districts not only not only make it easier for members, for, or excuse me, for citizens to contact their residents, whoever, to contact their representatives, but also would it sort of make those districts more localized in a way that would, and, and hear me out here, in a way that would actually exaggerate and exacerbate and lean into the divisions within parties and would make make politics less of a kind of nationally uniform parties are able to sort themselves into monoliths kind of kind of situation if it would localize politics a little bit more that on the one hand i think would raise the salience of certain of more local issues would make it less likely that that members of congress are just essentially running on the president's popularity and the president's platform at the same time would force as you said before rules in the house that that fundamentally are potentially sort of nationalizing right that potentially do empower the house majority the speaker etc and that do kind of create a more top down situation but i don't think that has to be 
I don't know that has to be the case. The rules can also allow for a lot of decentralization. And one of the things that you call for in your piece, Lee, is a, is a more committee-centric Congress. So in some ways, we're kind of going back to Congress prior to the 1974 reforms. And that, I think, is a sort of critical piece of the argument, is the degree to which such reforms could create a counterbalance to to nationalization. And I don't I don't think the nationalization of congressional politics is all a bad thing, but I do think that there have been some some unintended consequences and the way that it has smoothed out district and regional differences and made the parties look monolithic in a way that they're not has contributed to some of the representation problems and legitimacy problems that we've mentioned. Yeah, and I'm in full disclosure, I am I'm more of a classical Republican. I believe deeply and strongly in the participatory elements of, of democratic politics. And, and to a certain extent, I think you're right. And if you look at Jefferson and his concept of ward Republicanism that he lays out towards the end of his life, if you think about Hannah Arendt's concept of the council system that slowly grows from, I, mean, I won't bore you with the details here, but the idea that you have smaller groups of people who then self-select into larger groups of people and so on and so on until you get to the largest possible and, level. And, and James is moving his hands yeah. from the from the, from the the bottom up. Yeah, it's, and, very, it's very, it's very dramatic. dramatic. So, but yeah, so I, I do concede that point. I, I do. I just don't see it playing out in today's house that way. Well, I, I, th- I think there's a lot to, to Julia's argument, actually. At a level in which you have, you know, eight hundred thousand almost constituents, it's very hard to go on anything other than national cues. But if you have a, this would have to be a much larger house. But you could have a much greater variety of ideological candidates, identity candidates, and it would make parties ungovernable to the point where they would become factionalized, and then you would have to build different coalitions on different issues. And that's how the Congress of the of the 60s and the 70s worked, yeah, that it wasn't top down because there wasn't enough agreement within within the parties for it to be top down. But would and, it not just reinforce the tendency to resolve these issues off the floor away from away from uh, or out of the committee room? I mean, if John Aldrich tells us in the first Congress and that as party heterogeneity increases, the need for parties actually goes up and the need for partisan entrepreneurs and leaders to actually control the agenda and to keep issues on which they disagree off that agenda so they can act on the issues that they do agree on goes up, right? And so how does this force more decision-making in committees or on the floor versus reinforcing the tendency we have now, which is to make all the decisions off the floor and outside of places where you can't see the inflection points in the process, the pivotal players aren't clear, the accountability goes down, and no one has a clue what's happening because it's hard to tell. Well, it creates more power centers, and I think there'd be less agreement on having closed rules. Well, they would just have, they wouldn't bring up those issues on which closed rules were being used, right? I mean, well, let's run the experiment and see who's right. Yeah. So let me let me add something else here, which is that part of me feels like the policy process is is beside the point, and the reason is because we're not talking about changing the Senate. We talked about that a different time. Uh, make sure to look up that episode if you want to listen to our thoughts about changing the structure of Congress as a kind of little package. But we're not talking about that today. Right. What we're actually talking about is in in addition to potentially denationalizing Congress and in addition to changing the zero sum nature of representation, at least making it less tight, is we're talking about making the House even more different than the Senate. And that's an interesting proposition, given the given the idea that 
the Senate's become more House-like in some ways. But one way in which the Senate has not become more House-like is become more polarized, but it's not, you know, but it's much, it's very heavily representative of rural areas. And I think when we talk about expanding the House, we're talking about expanding the representation of rural constituents, right? And of population centers in California, like New York, um, Florida. We're not talking about expanding the representation of North Dakota. But the Dakotas and other sparsely populated states are, are very well represented in the Senate. So you're going to have... What? Just to interrupt you on that point, though, but do we see senators from those sparsely populated states behaving in ways that are fundamentally different from a representational perspective than senators from places like California, Texas, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, North Carolina. I mean, is there a, I'm not, I, I don't know the answer to this, but is there a point at which senators behave differently if they're, you know, from the lower populated states or from the higher populated states or even from the medium size like your Alabamas of the country with three and a half, four million people? Do senators behave differently? Mm -hmm. Because if they don't, behave differently. It could suggest that House members also will not behave differently in this environment with if they have 200,000 constituents versus 800,000 constituents. I think my, my point is really about rural versus right, but it's, representation. So I'm actually, I'm assuming the main difference is, is partisanship and that either partisanship itself or whatever is kind of underlying that urban rural partisan divide, that's the force that will shape the behavior of these new members of the House that we're imagining. And that many of them will be either will be Democrats or will behave functionally along the lines that we expect Democrats to, to behave, right? So they're going to represent diverse urban constituencies. The Senate will continue to heavily represent rural and white constituencies. So we're going to exacerbate the difference between the two of them and the kinds of inner chamber differences we've already seen. And that just means that nothing is actually going to come out of this Congress. It means that the versions of the bills, the House and the Senate are going to be more different. And I think that that, um, that seems like it should be really bad. But I think it actually highlights some of the representational problems. And so in some ways, as much as I'm in favor of reforms that will improve legitimacy, it, it might be good to highlight that. And that, you know, it, it won't be materially that different than what we have now, but it will sort of, you know, break the system more to expose its problems. This is a very strange argument for me to be making. Actually, yeah. that's, well, now you're talking about language, Julia. I like it. Well, I, you're talking my language now. I like breaking the system to, yes. uh, to expose the problems. <laughs> yeah. oh, uh, when, it, when it becomes unsustainable, it will be unsustainable. Burn although, it down. Although I will say one thing that might be interesting by heightening the difference between the House and the Senate is that if we reach a moment in which it's clear that the Senate will consistently be in conservative control and the House will consistently be in liberal control, and neither party has a has really a chance of taking over the other one, then you're in a situation where nobody's holding out for the next election. And that actually creates a better situation for bargaining, because one of the challenges of, of this particular moment, and we'll cite Francis Lee's important work here on insecure majorities, is that Every election is potentially up for grabs for either party, which creates a condition where neither party will work with the other party because they'd rather hold out for, for that unified control. But if we have a situation where things are going to be permanently one part, the House is you know, going to be 
perpetually liberal, the Senate is going to be perpetually conservative, you can actually create a situation where neither side is trying to dominate the other. And they say, look, we're, we're stuck in this together. So we might as well work together and find common ground or else we're not going to get anything done. And this was you know, arguably that period from 1969 through 1992, which was extended divided government between the House and mostly the Senate uh, in Democratic hands and the presidency mostly in Republican hands. There was a sense, well, that's just how things are. And the American people have split their their vote, and we need to to respond to that as politicians. Uh, it was only when Democrats cracked the lock on the presidency and Republicans cracked the lock on the House that suddenly that that extended period of compromise broke down. But it seems to me that in the during that period there was a sense that politics was different, and that yes. Congress was a place where you went to participate in an activity, and you had people on both sides of the partisan divide and both sides of the ideological divide in this country who wanted and expected action. And today, it seems that people don't see Congress in that way. They see it as a factory in which you try to control it by winning elections and the, dominating the political means of production. And once you control the factory, you can then build your widget and it becomes all about outcomes and action and activity in that environment in both the voters perspective and in the uh, mem members themselves, their perspective, it changes because you don't act in ways that challenge your ability to maintain control of the factory. And so you're always looking to the next election, and you're never really willing to act within the Congress. And so this is very similar to my view on multiple parties. While I'm very sympathetic to the idea, as long as those partisans uh, are motivated and animated by the same thought process, then I don't think it's going to change. And the same with, the, with increasing the size of the House. As long as the American people and the members of Congress see Congress in this way that I'm alleging they do right now, that differs from how it was before. I don't I don't think it matters much. And I think a great example of this is I think there was once upon a time a, a period when members especially in the Senate acted differently based on the rep of their constituents whom they represented. But today, I think that a senator from a rural, sparsely populated place acts the same way as a senator from Manhattan or a senator from, from California. And I think that tells me that they both see politics in the exact same way and that their constituents, uh, not being upset with them acting in those ways, actually agree with the way they see politics. And so I don't think that there's much difference right now. Well, Okay. So then the question is, why? Is it something that's changed in the culture or something that's changed in the institutional incentives that come from how, how our, our politics are, are trapped in this really strong two-party system with two parties competing for narrow majorities and the House static, the Senate static? That in a moment when, when everything is static, shouldn't we be thinking of, of, of big reforms to break that static nature of politics and then force people into action? A hundred percent. I'm right. just not sure this one is, is is it. I'm not sure. All right, but you're you're I'm, you're persuading me a little bit. I'm 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 interested in the experiment now. So I feel like this is the point where we actually think about whether anyone changed anyone else's mind, and I have a little bit to say about that. Okay, the, say it. I mean, so what what James's comments have made me think about is the actual nature of, of representation itself. So when I think about this proposal, I think about representation in a pretty static way. The idea being that, you know, there will be there will be certain kinds of constituencies, they will elect certain kinds of legislators, that party label might change, it might, you know, if if Lee gets his way, it might 
fragment into different party labels, but that that's ultimately, you know, that there's a kind of direct line between a certain kind of constituency, its geographical and demographic character, and the way that a legislator might behave. And James is, is has made me want to step back and think a little bit about representation both between constituents and representative and then what goes on in the in the representative body to think about that as a little bit more of a dynamic and constituted process by which you know preferences are are shaped in real time and not just fixed because of the character of the of the constituency this still doesn't necessarily make me think that it's not worth trying expanding the house but it does make me think a little bit differently about what representation really means well, there's probably some sort of feedback process going on there that the possibilities of representation are shaped by the way in which the Senate and the House are run and in a in a top-down process in which party leaders basically keep a lot of stuff off the agenda and draw sharp contrast between the two parties, representation becomes highly partisan and it doesn't differ by geography or by constituent group because there's really only two flavors of representation, the Democratic flavor and the Republican flavor, and they're the same everywhere. But I mean, I think there are potentially many more different variations. And if those variations could ha have some form of expression in a, in a more chaotic process, you would see those, those forms of representation emerging both from the, from the, the bottom up and from the top down, you know, which is, again, why I like multi-party democracy as a solution to our, our stuck politics, because I think it would create more generative possibilities. And, you know, increasing the size of the House would help push us in that direction. Uh, and I think it pairs nicely with the reforms that, that I've suggested in our previous episode, which discusses my book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy. Everyone should buy it. And not just not just one copy, but one for your friend, too. Multiple copies, just in Multiple case one copies. gets wet. Yes. Uh, it's a great classroom book. Thank you. So, I, so what were we talking about? Well, I'm... <laughs> I'm now, I'm still very skeptical, but I, I'm now thinking about this in two different ways. And while I think Jimmy Madison is correct in terms of what happens inside the house, I, I do think both Lee and Julia make some very interesting and valuable points that have a lot of insights about it could, by reducing the number of uh, constituents that representatives represent, it could make things a little bit more interesting and it could make it easier for those constituents to hold them more accountable. I'm not sure in this environment that that will, will actually change things because I think that a big part of the problem is that people also look at Congress as a factory as well. But it, it could be an interesting experiment and it could be something that ultimately does shake things up. And the way I approach reforms in general is that if something makes it easier for members of Congress to act, then by all means, it's something that we ought to try. But one other thing, and we haven't talked about it that I keep coming back to, is that if you have 700 to 1600 members, you need, you're going to have a lot more elevators. You're going to need more space. You're going yeah, to have well, to reform the Capitol. It's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful building. I mean, where you, maybe they could like how, operate. How often, how often do they, how often are, are they all actually in the chamber at the same time? I, I, when when, <laughs> when they, they vote, you have all these elevators. Yeah, you, you, could, you could have electronic voting. Also, you can build a few more office That's buildings a, over those parking yeah, lots. Yeah, so proxy voting or electronic voting is a, a little 
Well, they do kind of have electronic voting now, unlike the Senate where you put in your card, but they still have to go to the floor to do it. But I think this yeah. is no little itty bitty thing. I mean, the Capitol building is a beautiful building. Well, you don't have to change the Capitol building. Or just, where, are they you gonna, know, where are we going to put all these people? Oh, maybe, maybe up gonna, in the balcony. They're going to encroach into the Senate size where the hallways are bigger and the ceilings maybe, are higher maybe, and maybe the people lights can are brighter. share a desk, you know, and get to know somebody. <laughs> really? Woodward they and Bernstein have style. Bipartisan uh, desk sharing. Reason. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> it reminds me of that Gilbert and Sullivan uh, opera. Caught was it Cox and Box, where this you know the, this, the landlord rents out an apartment to two people, one of whom uh, uses it at night and works during the day, and the other one uses it during the day and works at night. And then one day they're both sick and they meet each other for the first time. It's it's a great great opera. Everybody should listen to it after they buy Lee's book and read it. What a great yes. recommendation! What, what a great and pairing. they can get a they can get a voting app. It's worked. It worked well in Iowa. <laughs> So where do we stand? So I guess I'm going to use my voting app to, are, are to we, weigh So in. I guess are we increasing the size of the house if it doesn't require more elevators? I right, just and build more room. Just build, build some, some, some new office freaking buildings. Freaking elevators! It's a public works project. But where there's nowhere to put some them people without. can take the stairs. That's true. That's you know, true. It's, if you're worried about the health of members of Congress, well, it needs to be accessible. That's you know. That's yeah, important. that's true. So no, so anyway, I mean, I'm just saying some we're... members could take the stairs, not all. Some. I think we may have gone down a rabbit hole. So what were you going to say? Right, pull Julie? us out. Pull us out. Pull us out. It's all it's on you. Pull, that, pull the rabbit out of the <laughs> hole. <laughs> I have to fix this for you too? So, okay. I think practical problems are important. They can be overcome. Where are we at? We are, I mean, I think we're at a moment where we have a lot of unknowns about how this would how this would play out in a legislative context, what kinds of pressures it would create. Um, on the rules and what the the best forms for for representation are, as well as the practical considerations of elevators and bathrooms and all those good things. Fair point. So maybe we have to just hope that our listeners will will weigh in on this as well and give us lots of thoughts. And then maybe one day Lee's dreams will come true and they will increase the size of the house and then we can have an experiment and see what happens. Yeah, if only we could kind of bifurcate the universe into into alternate realities and, oh man. Well, isn't that what that's they do? The, the political science dream. Yeah. But that's we'll that's what they do on a regular basis in Congress right now, right? Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, touche. Right. On on that note, I think we've uh, I think that's that, that's it for this episode. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. Okay. All right. I think we're good. We're good. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. 